Welcome back, everyone. This is Eric Ellefson with the Digital Education Podcast. And if you've been listening or if you're a new listener, love talking to people who are innovators, thinkers, changers in education. Um, and today I'm with, um, I guess, more of a new friend, somebody I've known of but haven't really known personally, uh, Brian Goodwin. And Brian is the CEO of McCrell International. And really, I've gotten to know Brian through my work at Baylor University, but he he also what showed up on my on my on my desk one day was a book that that's called Learning That Sticks, a brain-based model for K-12 instructional design and delivery that Brian co-wrote with a couple other authors. And and Brian, one of the things I just want to jump in, thank you for for joining us. Great Thank to be you here. for this conversation. And a lot of times we talk about the big picture change in education that needs to happen. And we forget about what happens in the classroom. Right. Yeah. And, and that in in this, what happens in the classroom is that's the magic. You know, whether it's a virtual classroom or whether it's, you know, you know, in-person classroom, you know, we're seeing all these different things. And, and your book was a reminder to me as a classroom teacher of so much of the good training that I got as a teacher that led me to, to be a quality teacher. But then even it gave me some reflection on the places where, oh, I was weak or I could have gone further. Why was it so important for you to say, hey, you know what, we want to take this research on on, on neuroscience, right? You know, some of this other stuff that you're writing about and learning about and referencing but to create a brain-based model for K to 12 instructional design and delivery, like give me the backstory of that. Yeah. 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 I think it's partly to your point, you know, that um, I think Larry Cuban makes that point that oftentimes education reform is like a storm at sea, a lot of waves at the top. And then deep down in the ocean, nothing has really changed. So it's kind of, we have to get at classrooms to really be innovative. But for some, for me, it came from a couple of things. One is, Maybe not being an awesome teacher, you know, like you get in the profession, you think you're going to be, you know, like Robin Williams in Dead Poets Society. And then you quickly realize, oh, no, I, I'm Ben Stein in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, right? And so um, I think I found myself thinking, how could I become, I went to Baylor, that's how we met, right? And I was a really different college student than I was a high school student. I was disengaged. I was not a good high school student. I was a nightmare for some of my teachers, I know. But then I get to college and like something happens, right? So like, how did that, what I, I kept wondering as a teacher, what happened for me and how could I bottle that up and give it to kids? And it kind of came down to understanding that like, there are things like curiosity, right? That, that get us engaged. And like, how could we design learning experiences that start like that? And once you start thinking about things like curiosity, it's like, what is that even? Like, how do our brains all of a sudden go, hey, I'm, I want to know something I didn't want to know before. And so for me, a couple of, so then my, the, the other piece here, Eric, is, um, we had written at McCrell. Um, I work for McCrell International. We, and before a couple, you know, years ago, we'd written a book called Classroom Instruction That Works. We actually just came out with a new edition of that. But we would see folks like taking teaching practices that we told them, hey, these are important teaching practices like cooperative learning. And I would go out in classrooms and, and sometimes see teachers doing that stuff. And then like, well, why are you having kids do cooperative learning right now? And I got to think about my own practice as a teacher, like, I would do the right things, but if you would ask me, hey, Brian, why are you doing cooperative learning? I might have said, I, uh, I know it's Wednesday, <laughs> you know, or like I need to do something different with my kids, but not knowing why I would do that. So a lot of this was also trying to get at the intentionality for teachers. Like, 
Why do we do the things we do? And that's, as you know, Eric, that's like the breakthrough moment for so many teachers. Like once I understand why I'm doing what I'm doing, man, now I'm off to the races, right? That's like this huge inflection point for so many teachers. So long answer to a short question. You said that was supposed to be short. Sorry, it wasn't. No, no, that's perfect. It's perfect because there's multiple other questions before I want to, you know, keep going. Um, because I think what I loved about the book too, is it, it took very complex ideas and it simplified it. And so even for me, I've been encouraging friends to read this book together in their schools to be able to say, Hey, how do we, how do we not make teaching simplistic on the Ben Stein side of things? Right. Right. <laughs> you know, where it's like, put everybody to sleep and, right. you know, but how can we simplify or even how do we how do we just think about, you know what, this is when we add in, you know, the, the collaborative learning. This is when we add in. This is when we add in the individualized learning. This is when like even for, for you, you know, one of the chapters is practice and reflect. Yeah. Like I love how you didn't make it simplistic. You took something complex, didn't make it simplistic, but you simplified it. So it's like, oh, I can, I can, I can. What would you encourage as, as you, as something like this, as a classroom teacher, like what would be the places that you've said, hey, you know what, if you're a teacher using this book or digging deep into this, what would be a couple of tips that you've just discovered on like, yeah. hey, here, here's a way to use this to improve your practice in the classroom so students can learn and that's a great question yeah we so we'll, you know we, there's you'll see in the book there's like a six phase learning model we tried to make it simple we don't really go too much into like neuroscience or neuropeptides any of that kind of stuff but really more cognitive science and so it's like understanding how the process of learning works and so i think what we find for a lot of teachers like one of those big aha moments is thinking about the first couple phases of learning right so we talk about kids need, need to become interested because intrinsic motivation is the key, right? We know that intrinsic motivation is more effective than extrinsic rewards. Yes, we can bribe kids. We can tell them, hey, it's on the test. Or if you do well, you will have a pizza party, whatever. But we know that that real learning is actually intrinsically motivated. So that's where we help teachers think about how am I going to get kids curious about this thing that that they need to learn? What's the, is there a mystery here? Is there like a question a big question, compelling question? Is there like a controversy or is there something just kind of unexpected? You know, like history is full of all kinds of those things. Like the, the American should, the American colony should have never won the revolutionary war, right? How did, how did that happen? That's kind of a mystery. So I think that idea of like, how could I draw students into the learning in a way that makes them curious? And that's also, there. You know, we, we talk about brain science here in the book, but that was some of the brain science is like, we know that curiosity, if you are curious about something and you get your curiosity resolved, a lot of things happen. You are more likely to retain that knowledge you are also more likely to um, actually retain stuff you weren't even trying to learn if you're if you're just if your brain is primed with curiosity. And then plus, if the brain scans do show this when you get that curiosity resolved, it activates our dopamine reward center. So like it makes learning joyful. So like if that's a, I think it's a big frame. How do we make kids curious? And then the second phase is like helping kids commit to learning by having a learning goal, um, not just the objective on the board. But do I have a goal? Do I know why I'm learning this? And that's where we, we we borrow the Madison Avenue term, the, the WIFM, what's in it for me. Like, have we helped kids understand, hey, if you learn this stuff, here's what's in it for you. Like, here's how this is, here's how you're going to use this in your real life or later on how you're going to need to know this or 
um, maybe how you can use this knowledge to help others, right? So I think we find oftentimes like just priming the learning, getting it started well, can be a real um, game changer for teachers. So before we get into implications of this, because that's really what I want to ask, you you released this book in 2020, and then now you've got the 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 other book, right? That has just yep. just been re-released. And, and then so in 2020, COVID hits, um, and now we're coming out of this world where uh, almost we went virtual, and then now people are like rejecting the virtual stuff. <laughs> right. <laughs> What 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 lessons or what things did you learn or what are the things that you wish people would have learned during that COVID shutdown from this book or from your work that says, hey, you know what, like this still this this can work in whatever setting. One hundred percent. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, I kept finding myself thinking that if people had had gone into COVID with a learning model. So the other thing we tried to do is like. Some folks will look at that and go, hey, this looks like Madeline Hunter from back in the day. It's kind of is, but it's flipped around. Like what's happening in your kids' brains? I think if teachers had thought about, okay, so I need to get my kids interested. I need to get them committed to learning. But the one of the other keys in the book is like this idea of extension application, right? So you can do that at home. You don't have to be on a Zoom call, right? So I we kept thinking that actually had teachers had a better learning model, they could have done blended or online so much better, recognizing that um, in some ways getting out of that Ben Stein model, right? I think so many teachers felt like, okay, I got to take my classroom lecture and do it in a Zoom call, which was dreadful, right? Um, or But it, had they been saying, okay, I'm going to introduce some knowledge here and there, but really I want my kids to extend and apply this and they can do that on their own and we'll check back in, right? We could have made it so much a more rewarding experience but we heard this from kids they would say interestingly enough like hey my teachers who were pretty engaging before the pandemic their their online classes were pretty good right because they knew what to do they knew they weren't going to just just lecture at me ad nauseum you know anyone anyone right um but the teachers who were who were disengaging before the pandemic it was awful when they went online right so i think it became this of true bifurcation almost amplification of good practice and bad practice when it went online well, and, and so I want to get into implications because I love some of what, you know, you even write about and, and I love in the title, right? It's it's about instructional design and delivery, right? So there's an intentionality to designing it well so that it can be delivered well. And and so I, I've got all kinds of questions and I, I this is where I really wanted to take the conversation because as I'm reading the book, I'm like, yes, 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 yes. But I, I, and I have more of the high school experience. So I'm going to kind of lean on my own personal That's experience where I taught as a myself teacher. Too. So yeah, yeah, right? but, yeah. I, but I, but I taught, I taught, I taught lessons that were as short as, you know, I taught in the in classroom as short as 40 minutes. You know, 55 was probably, you know, normative for most of where I was at. And then 90 minutes. Like, help me understand like how this, what the implications are of this for how we actually design our school day, even our school year. I'm yeah. And I'm going to throw a bunch of stuff out to you and you take it right. Yeah. School day, school year, like, and, and then even just like, like I think about a high school student taking six or seven classes at the same time. Yeah. Like, you, you, the curiosity and some of the stuff that was in here is like, ah, 
you know, how, how, how curious can you become when you're doing six or seven classes at the same time, right? right? Drinking, the, drinking through a fire hose of yeah. information. Yeah, no. So, I, so yeah. think yeah. out loud with me a little bit yeah, on some no, of the implications right. of this. So we have, we have cautioned some folks, like it's a six phase learning model. You're not going to do that every lesson, by the way, right? It's more thing about your unit design. And so this idea of extension application is really, uh, why wouldn't you have every, uh, you know, curriculum unit end in some kind of application activity because the brain science shows that, right? We're more likely to retain information that we've had to use. We've had to go back to it in multiple ways and maybe use it to solve a complex problem or to engage in, in an extended writing task where we get to bring our own voice to what we're learning about history um, or a, a guided investigation, right? Where you're going deep into something. And so I think there, there's a lot of implications for curriculum design. And this isn't just all, by the way, theory. Like I've seen so many great examples of places that have done this, places like in Australia. I've had the, you know, the the opportunity just, uh, it's been amazing to go there and see like schools that have really decided we're going to focus on curiosity. And so what they'll do in the morning, so this gets to your design implications, right? So the morning, they have the same kind of test pressures in Australia that we do here in the U.S. And so they'll say, let's focus on um, maths, right? It's always maths, plural, and <laughs> maths and reading in the morning. But then in the afternoon, we're going to do these cross-curricular, really cool, engaging investigations. So like I've seen one of them I, when I was there, it was like they were looking at climate change, the impact in the outback, right? That's huge. What does it mean for farmers? What does it mean for indigenous folks? What does it mean for the economy of Australia? What's going to happen here? So the um, it was fun because I was there at lunchtime. The kids are coming in from lunch because and you could tell they're excited. Like now the learning begins. So that's elementary school level. Like, can we rethink how we go through the day? And why not have like investigations? And these are like six week long kinds of things. Co-planned. Teachers are doing them together. Um, they were multi-age classrooms, by the way. Um, and then they would put them in a big binder. So two years later, they'd come back and kind of refresh the lesson, make it more engaging. So that's one idea. Like maybe it's not uh, every teacher doing their own thing, but why not have these kind of deeper investigations? And I, I, one of the schools that I was in to Eric um, doing this. And so I talked to the principal, about how, what, what did she, you know, when she started first go started going down this path of like, can we have more curiosity in our classrooms and deeper learning that really reflects how the brain works? The teacher's were the ones who got worried like well what about the test scores and she said you know let me worry about the test scores you worry about good teaching and learning and and lo and behold she was right right the test scores did go up but it wasn't because they were worrying about the kids that were partially proficient any of that stuff let's just have really great teaching and learning experiences that's one model i could give you a bunch um but i think you're right we have to rethink the curriculum if we're doing this mile wide inch deep thing it's never going to work so so then like as as you think about some of this and and it's helpful to to hear you talk about that cuz cuz I also think about this too right you know it's 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 a little bit of where we got into this dichotomy of the virtual or the in person but there's more than just the virtual there's an in person there's virtual there's the in person there's the hybrid there's the yeah. synchronous asynchronous there's the outdoor right yeah. Like, help yeah. us think about the implications of like how all of that could even fit into something maybe a little bit more, you know, like, like, yeah, a little bit more beautiful, a little bit better, or just even yeah. more that that does some of what you're talking about in this or allows for maybe more intentionality and purposefulness for those activities. Like, hey, this is yeah. an activity yeah. we need to be in person for or 
this is this is something that like we got to get out of the classroom for like we got to hit the road or we got to be outdoors or we got to be in nature whatever it might be like help us think about like the the multi-dimensionality of even like space and and you know gathering in in all of the different ways yeah that's a cool question so you know so if you if I, I'll go back to the six phases of learning, right? So we talk about, I've, I've mentioned getting kids interested, helping them commit to learning, but we talk about focusing on new knowledge and that's where you can say, okay, so one of the things we know about the brain is that we are all actually visual learners, right? We all learn better when something's visual and verbal. So if folks tell you I'm a visual learner, go great. So are 8 billion other people on the planet, right? So, um, so, but technology can be a great way to make things visual, right? Now I can share a video, like, Here's Machu Picchu. Look what this looks like today. And now we might think about what it looked like, you know, when the Incas were there. Um, so I think those are opportunities that you make. Oh, technology can be a great way to visualize things. And so then we also talk about once you focus on the new knowledge, you know, things like vocabulary instruction is important if it's paired with conceptual understanding, by the way. But also then at some point we have to make sense of our learning, right? We have to pause, we have to process, have a brain break. Um, and connect dots, connect maybe our new knowledge with our prior learning. Well, that's done really well in person, right? So that's in small groups, right? So that's where we might say, okay, we've done a kind of a cool visual thing. You've, you've watched this video, but now let's talk about it. Let's use some high level questions to talk about it together. And I think that's that's usually done, frankly, better in person, right? It's it's If we have to, we could do that as a Zoom call, but usually it's better in person. But then, and then things like the uh, the fifth phase is that practice and reflect. There are some great technology tools out there for that. Quizlet is a great example. Like it actually serves up the learning just like it should, right? So you get you get um, spaced practice over time. It can be mixed up. You, you're doing more than one kind of you know uh, math formula. So technology can be a great support. Then as I think about like that sixth phase of learning, that extension application. That could be where you go outdoors, or maybe you started outdoors and the kids have experienced a science phenomenon. Now let's go figure out what's happened, right? We're going to do some, maybe there's some, there is some text learning perhaps, but I think that sixth phase is where, as we think about what is that investigation I want kids to have? Um, and actually that's where the backward design comes in, right? If I think about what's the end point, then I go, okay, now I'm going to back this whole thing up. So yeah, I've seen great examples. We, we work in places like Hawaii and you know, the kids go out to like these fish ponds that were created by the Native Hawaiians centuries ago, and they have a chance to experience the ecology, the history, the um, uh, the science of everything that's happening in those fish ponds. And then they come back to the classroom and reflect on what they've just learned. So I think that's also where, you know, our, our brains weren't really designed to learn in a classroom. That, that's, a re- that's a relatively new invention, right? Our brains were designed to go out in nature and learn things and explore. And so... Um, yeah, I'm always really excited about kind of outdoor learning because I think it's really pretty authentic. If you can come back and say, now, what's the concept we just learned here? That's something called evaporation. Now we can learn more about what that is. How much then to, okay, so implications, student yes. choice, right? You know, so oh, yeah. so you look at some of this, right? We do know there's there's things that, you know what, hey, like to that, to that principal's point of say, let me worry about the test scores. But there are things that like, we know that students need like reading, writing, math, you know, like the, the, the right. classics, you know, but their skills, there's these sorts of things is, but then at what point in time does choice play a role? Because a lot of times we don't give a ton of choice no. to students in their learning. So what role does choice play in this, in this, 
in this space? Yeah, that's a great question. We know, as you as you mentioned, we know that choice is incredibly motivating for kids. There's meta-analyses that have been done about the power of choice. I feel like the choice really comes in in that kind of maybe that that capstone, the end of the unit. What's the investigation? So you can propose, hey, here's five different things you can investigate. And by the way, we, we also know um, research on choice. Kids don't need 30 choices. You know, a handful usually does, right? 30 choices actually um, has diminishing effects because they spend so much of their time worrying about which of these 30 things am I going to do, right? Um, it's a cognitive load issue. So like, here's a handful of choices. And you as a teacher can say, I know there's actually fruitful investigations in each of these five areas, right? Learn about one of five people or write something about one of these five folks. So I think that's where choice can really kind of work in is that you we built the background knowledge. We've learned maybe a, a, an episode of history together, right? We built the the vocabulary that we need. We understand oligarchy versus plutocracy, whatever, right? We know the vocabulary. Now take that knowledge and go do something with it. But you might choose a different, you know, government and you're going to analyze that using the vocabulary that you've got. Um, and so that's where I think we can build choice into that. And I think really also, Eric, what we're getting at is like, you may still have that regular classroom assessment, but that's really almost like a check to see, do the kids have the foundational knowledge, but then going beyond that classroom assessment to something deeper and, and um I quote John Medina in the book. He's a cognitive scientist. And he talks about basically kids forget 90% of what they learn in the classroom within 30 days anyway. So maybe instead of fixating on like, are we going fast enough? Well, they're just forgetting it all. Why not go deeper and have them actually retain the knowledge, which kind of goes back to that principal's point. You focus on good teaching and learning. I'm pretty sure the test scores will come up if we do the right things, right? All right. I'm going to give you, I'm going to, what's the question that I haven't asked? Uh, that's a good one. That um, that that you think that people should dig deeper on. Hmm, that's a good question. Is there something around? So you most of your listeners they're they're thinking about innovation, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and a lot of times too, it's it's the educator that says, "I want to do this better, right? I want right. to do this more life giving. I want to do this with more energy." I think about myself as that classroom teacher where. Right. You know, it was like there, there is, I, you know what, I've gotten a taste of good. Oh, but right. I think there's a, there, there can be better. Right. right? So maybe and, it's a question for that, for that teacher. Like where, what's my next step? If I, if I, if I'm excited about this or I want to do something, where should I go? And I think I can answer that. So. And it, so then, so then what would you say to a school leader like that school leader that says, Hey, you know what? Like, let's, let's do this in a better way what would be maybe be an encouragement or what would be something to a school leader you'd say that say hey you know what like this will help yeah that's a great question i think what what i've always found is that everyone got into this profession because they, they wanted to be good at their jobs right they want to have joyful learning happening that's another point i like to make is that when you apply research um, the science of learning, the science of teaching. I think sometimes people think about research is like telling you you need to eat kale and go to spinning class. And like, oh, I don't want to do that. But actually what research is about, this is about, about creating joyful learning experiences. So I think it's starting with your teachers and saying, what would it look like if kids were excited to come to school, right? If they were bummed out that it's Saturday because they can't go to school, like what would, you know, how would we design the kind of learning experiences that we want to have? And I've done this actually exercise with teachers where I ask them just like list adjectives, like, what do you hope for your kids? What do you what do you want your classrooms to look and feel like? And you list those things out and they'll say things like, oh, engaging and like full of curiosity, full of like 
conversation and dialogue. Okay, cool. Now what would it take for us to get there? As opposed to like saying, you're doing it all wrong, you know, take this six phase model and just apply it. That's never going to work. It's really, you know what it is. It's um, we want to help teachers become curious too, right? So how do we spark teacher curiosity? We can't very well ask teachers to help students become curious if they're not feeling curious themselves. And so let's create the conditions for curiosity to flourish for our teachers. And then they can do the same thing for their kids. That's amazing, right? Like you get curious teachers, you're going to have curious kids. Yeah. Yeah. And that that is what you see in schools that really kind of embrace this idea of like, yeah, let's make learning experiences look like how our kids' brains work because then it gets easier and more joyful for everybody. Right. And so, but it is that curiosity. Let's keep digging deeper. And what, how do we get better and better what we're doing? Okay. So I'm going to close with this because I have a guess, but my guess is that in schools that are doing like deeper learning, joyful learning, some of this stuff well, where there's, there, you know, like it's beautiful and you see it and it's coming alive and there's this curiosity is that the teachers aren't working alone. All the time. Yes, exactly. I mean, this is tough work. And I think that becomes part of the joy too, is like, but that's what professionals do too. Like doctors come together and say, what's the patient presenting with? How do we help? Right. And so, I think that is also part of this is we can we can do this work together and learn together. Um, and that's what I've seen in places like Australia where they've embraced this. So I think that's also part of the message here is like, um, let's rethink better learning experiences together and and then grow from one another. And yeah, and team teach and all these things we, that we know are important for teachers. Yeah. And that would that would be my encouragement as we go into summer. I, I think that's where I've been encouraging people as I've read this book, you know, just recently is like get this book, get a couple friends from your from your school, three or four, have coffee once a week, read a chapter. What does it mean? Right. Yeah. You know, what yeah. does it mean for us? Right. And that that's been one of my encouragement. Do one of those study sessions, summer sessions where it's like, hey, we're learning as we go. But Brian, what would as we close out, what would be a great way for people to connect with you? or to see the work that you're doing? Yeah, just, just you can find our website. We're a nonprofit. Um, we have a lot of free stuff on the website. So just go to mccrell.org, um, M-C-R-E-L.org. We've been around a long time, but we have, so we have a lot of stuff out there to share. Um, or reach out to me. Um, here's my, I'll give you my email. It's bgoodwin at mccrell.org. And I would love to hear from you all. As you can tell, I love talking about this stuff. So I'd love to have a conversation with any of your listeners too. Brian, thank you so much. Awesome. It's been great to be here.